Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Front Row Network, the pop culture network for NPR Illinois Community Voices. I'm your host today, Craig, and I am joined today by a very special person. Howard Berger is who I get a chance to speak with today, and he is currently a governor to the Academy of Motion Picture Art and Sciences. Yes, he's involved in the Academy from the makeup and hairstyling wing, and so that means that he represents all of these other makeup artists and hairstylists to that board, and I can't wait to get a chance to talk to him about his role in that, but also it's incredible the amount of work that he has done over the last several decades. If you think of so many of those amazing creatures and monsters that have come about in the last 40 years, Howard has probably been involved in some way, shape, or form. One of his first credits was Aliens. And from there, he's gone on to do so many amazing things through his K&B Effects studio that he has started with uh, Bob Kurtzman and also Greg Nicotero. And he's the B in that, Howard Berger. And he, it's, it's a remarkable the amount of work that he has done and that he would take time out of his day to chat with us. There certainly are some of his credits that I want to ask him about, in particular, The Chronicles of Narnia, which is what he won his Oscar for. I also should mention he's also an Emmy winner as well with his work on The Walking Dead. And then I need to ask about things like Oz the Great and Powerful, because Wizard of Oz means so much to a lot of my friends and including my wife as well. And to get that classic look and see what happens from there, he just has this amazing, passionate story that I want to make sure he's able to share as well, because you can tell that he's someone that absolutely loves his role and really loves the work that he's doing. And I'm just excited to get a chance to chat with him about all of that. It's great to talk to people that are passionate about their work and passionate about what the future of that work will be as well. And so I'm going to get out of your way right now. Here is my chat with Howard Berger. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to bring Howard Berger to our show today. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, Howard. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm glad to be here. So, you know, it's bright and early, so it's perfect timing. Before I know, before you the said, uh, you're yeah. doing this quite early on the West Coast for me here, and I really do appreciate that. So hopefully we can get your day off to a good start. Oh, no, it's all good. Yeah, it's good to just get into it before the craziness begins later in the day. You know what I have noticed from doing some research on your career, and I'm actually an academic advisor by day. I do a lot of this as kind of freelance and, and side you are so passionate about this field. And so I love it when you can see someone that marries their passions for something into a career. It's just great. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us about some of your superhero origin story. How did you become uh, this makeup artist and now this governor to the academy and everything else that you have had in your career? Well, you know, it all stemmed from, you know, having my parents were very encouraging and my weirdness when I was a little kid, I loved monsters and movies. My dad was a film fanatic. He was a, a, a cinephile and, and turned me into a cinephile. And we used to watch movies all the time, all different types of movies. But of course, I gravitated to, to monsters and movies and stuff like that. That was the, the big thing for me. You know, it, it was, um, you know, I, I, I knew that there, was, there were people that made monsters for movies. And that was something that really, really inspired me. And I'm like, I want to grow up 
and learn how to do that and figure it out. So the best way to do it was to figure it out. So my grandfather took me to this, this makeup store, Sig Friends Beauty Supply in North Hollywood. And we uh, talked to this guy that worked there. Namie is, was his name. And he sold me this great book that Mike Westmore had written. It's a very simplistic book and bought a couple of supplies and materials. And I just went home and I did it. And, and it's something that I really push on people now that because I get a lot of emails and a lot of letters and phone calls. And, you know, when I meet people and they ask about it, it's like, you know, what should I do? How should I get on, into this? And there's no one word, you know, there's not like a magic word like, you know, abracadabra, and then you become a makeup effects person. It's all really just getting to it, you know, and I know the scariest thing is to start something, you know, even mm-hmm. if you're a painter, and you're looking at a blank canvas, the this hardest part is starting. And then the next hardest part is finishing knowing when you're done. So but I just started doing stuff in my bedroom. And I think my parents thought, that it was a hobby or like, Oh, Howard's, you know, kind of, he likes this. It's kind of fun. But then as I kept doing it more and more as I kept getting older and older, by the way, I started doing this when I was about eight years old, 50 years ago, which is insane. And I just kept getting better and better and better at it and doing more and more stuff. It was great. And I just, and, and again, having the encouragement of my, my parents, my mom was a teacher, but also a fine artist. And she really, really, you know, I think I got those genes from her, the art genes from her. And then I got the movie genes from my dad. So it was a perfect, combination of you know being being some sort of an artist in the film industry that's so wonderful now before we go too far i do want to mention that this interview is taking place essentially because of donald mowat and he suggested that uh you come and chat with us and so i wanted to say thank you to him in case he's listening back but also just to talk about it it's really neat to see this sort of collection of makeup artists that seem to be supportive of each other is that is it a nice community it is. And and I think it's it's kind of recent, you know, in terms of the, you know, I'd say probably the last, I don't know, maybe last 10 years, we've, we've been more supportive than in, in the past. There, I think, um, you know, splitting it up, like as owning a makeup effects shop, uh, K&B effects group that I own with Greg Nicotero for, you know, we've been at, we've had it for 35 years and there was definitely a, uh, a competitive attitude between us and the other shops. And back in the eighties, there was probably 50, 55 shops. Now there's barely a handful, but it, it, it used to be very much like a dog eat dog sort of thing and, and, and not as friendly a competition. Nowadays, it's a very friendly, there's basically no, it's not a competition. You know, if somebody gets a job over us, like if Legacy, which is another effects house that does Mandalorian and Marvel and all that stuff, they're amazing, gets a job, that's great. You know, if we get the job, they're happy for us. If, you know, Alec Gillis gets a job, we're happy for him. So it's definitely, we're all friends. We all grew up together too. We all started working with each other, you know, when we worked for Stan Winston or Rick Baker or Kevin Yeager. And then as a makeup artist, I think that as our generation, you mentioned Donald, Donald and I are the same age. And I think as our generation gets older, we get a little wiser. And so I feel that we are definitely more supportive of each other, which is great. You know, it used to be, again, a bit of like doggy dog and so forth. And now I don't feel like it's like that with our generation. I'm I'm concerned about the next generation behind us because they all came out of like the schools and you know, watching TV shows that were about makeup and effects and so forth. And it was all about competition. And I've explained to them over and over again, you have to work together. You can't be, you know, a wolf pack of one, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're not going to have success that way. Um, So, you know, 
becoming really great friends with Donald, which which has been relatively recent. It's really wonderful. And and he's a magnificent guy. I love him to no end. Super talented. I'm so proud of him. You know, the, the one of the things we share in common, aside from being makeup artists and being re- the same age, we both were working with Mark Wahlberg for years and years as his personal. So like Donald used to work for Mark forever and a day. And then he went off to go, you know, broaden his career. And then there were other people in between. And then I ended up working with Mark starting in uh, 2012. And, and it was great. I think I worked for like eight or eight or nine years with Mark or something like that. And, and it was wonderful. And then, you know, I already had, had a career and I had this company and I enjoyed working with Mark immensely, but I wanted to get back into spreading my wings. And, you know, there, it was, it was rare that Mark was going to do a monster movie. So I was like, I got to go, I got to go, you know, soil my oats in the world of creatures and makeup effects. And he was great about it, but you know, it was, it was, it's great having friends that are also your, your collaborators and your inspiration, like Donald, like there's so many great makeup artists that I know and and I work with and have known for decades and, and I value all of them. And we all teach each other things, you know, we, we still talk about different techniques just to enhance. So it's not what we sit around. As my wife says, you guys just sit around and talk about ball caps and glue, but we don't really <laughs> just only do that. So there's other life things we like to talk about outside of ball caps and glue. But yeah, no, it's, it's great. It's, it's, I really love seeing like my handful of friends that also do what I do. It's really, it's really a lot of fun. You know, you've taken me down so many potential paths there, but I think what I'd like to talk about for a second is the, the change in the industry going to much more of a CGI feel for a lot of different effects. And that happened more so in the visual effects at first, but then now it's really starting to happen in makeup and in these suits. I just talked to Donald and mentioned that, you know, Oscar Isaac, when he turns into Moon Knight in his most recent project, that's an all CGI suit. And so he didn't necessarily need to to work on that piece of it. Is that why the there's a, a lower number of the houses? And talk to me about that practical effects, because I don't want to bury this. You have a book coming out in September and it's kind of it's called A Century of Practical Magic. And it's kind of gathering together all these different makeup artists. And I can't wait to get my hands on it. But talk to me about me, me too. I can hardly wait to get my hands on <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about the practicality and kind of that shift in the industry. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's gone through a lot. So it, it, it was, it was scary when uh, Jurassic Park came out. Hmm. And I remember sitting in the audience with my friends who worked on Jurassic Park and in, at Stan Winston studios, making the practical dinosaurs. And we looked at each other and said, we're extinct. This is, this is it. This is the future of the film. Well, it was, but it wasn't. The technology was the future. But the thing is, not every movie has the talent, skill, and money and time to facilitate something as great as Jurassic Park. So after Jurassic Park came out, everyone was like, we got to, you know, it needs to be digital, it needs to be digital. But there was a tremendous amount of horrible digital work. And it was just like, wow, this is really, really crap. No matter what, it always starts with something practical. So there's a movie called Species, and Mm -hmm. it uh, has... Uh, great makeup effects by a, a, a guy named Steve Johnson, who um, was amazingly talented, is amazingly talented, not was, but is amazingly talented. And what he built was a spectacular Giger-esque, Giger-designed creature, uh, suit and puppet and all this stuff. And then the visual effects company was hired and they changed the design 
purposefully, I think, so that they couldn't utilize Steve's work and they wanted to showcase and grandstand. And it's some of the worst CGI ever. And most of the mm-hmm. reason, the problem it doesn't work is that it has no, no weight, no gravity. It's like bouncing on walls and this, and it's like, what is it made of helium? So that was also part of the problem. And, and, you know, Jurassic Park was successful as well because they had Phil Tippett involved and Phil Tippett's a stop motion animator who actually has a film out right now called Mad God, which is a a film he'd been working on for 30 years. It's all stop motion animation. I'm going to go see it this week. He really was involved with the CGI guys in terms of the weight and making things feel like they have gravity and that they're, they're earthly and, and earthbound. VFX was like the flavor of the month and was, you know, could be used for things and all that. And there was definitely a head to head competition between the practical effects world and the VFX world. But then as, as, as time went on, VFX ended up getting hit with the same constraints and limitations we did, which was, you know, money became an issue and time became an issue. So VFX started to work hand in hand with us and we started to work hand in hand with them. I think where for us, for K and B, where it really, clicked was Greg Nicotero was working on Sin City and we did a tremendous amount of makeup in that film that was then had digital um, enhancements to it purposefully as part of the design that Robert Rodriguez the director wanted to do and that was Greg and his first endeavor into the, the mix at the same time we were doing the first Chronicles of Narnia line which in the wardrobe and that was my first experience like really like working hand in hand with like Dean Wright and Bill Westenhofer from Rhythm and Hughes and Scott Farrar from ILM and really working hand in hand, like, okay, so what do I need to build? Like you build from the waist up and we'll build from the waist down, you know, and we'll combine the two and that'll be the magic trick. And, you know, be it Mr. Tumnus or be it Ottman, the Minotaur or Satyrs or or Centaurs. And that's really where it started to kind of like, okay, we got to do this together. And it Mm -hmm. kept doing that and doing that every movie I would be on, I immediately became friends with the VFX supervisor and producer because I would, I would use them as a tool and they'd use me as a tool because there's things we can do that they can't, but there's things they can't do that we can. So, and, 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 and I'll go to them and go, listen, this should be a VFX. What do you guys think about this? Like I'm on a show right now and I'm talking to the VFX supervisor all the time going, all right, they want to do this, but I really feel like this is a VFX solution. You know, I think it's a waste for us to do it, to have them put the money into your department, you know, or they'll come to us and go, we would love to have these elements. Is there a way of, you know, incorporating this or can you build this and then we can scan it, you know, and, and we, and now we have the capability of scanning and photogrammetry and 3d printing and, and all that here. So we can then create one thing and share the, uh, the, the, the asset, with everybody. And then everything always looks the same because it's all, it all starts with, you know, the, the, the thing that we're, we're making and it works out great and it saves them time and money. They don't have to render it. They don't have to do any of that stuff. So it, it, it was a, um, a, a challenging relationship uh, many, many years ago. And now it's just a really great marriage of the two arts and crafts because really it's not about grandstanding. It's about what can we do to facilitate the director's vision. And, and, and the production's needs. And we all work towards that now. So it's whatever's best for the production is what we're going to do and not battle. Like, well, I think this should be, you know, this needs to be a makeup. It's like, guys, it's cool. Maybe we'll do half of it in a makeup and then we'll do digital, or maybe this all wants to be a makeup or maybe this all wants to be digital. So it's really learning to work together, which, which I feel our industry has done. 
That's great. And, you know, as a fan, it's so great to also see because there was that time in the early 2000s where it seemed like we were going so far into the visual effects, but kind of losing that practicality. And I distinctly remember Chris Nolan brings out the Dark Knight and so many of the effects that he uses in that movie are done with practical effects. And it just kind of helped bring me as an audience member back into that. And now you've worked with these incredible directors. You work with Quentin Tarantino all the time. That's someone that really appreciates the value of film and the classic nature of film. And so he's using you for lots of different practical makeups and everything else. His movies don't necessarily verge so much into the visual effects side of things, but talk about that relationship that you have with him and and how that form and sort of his style in working with you uh, on the makeup. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, we, Greg and myself met Quentin. And back then there was another partner at KMB, Bob Kurtzman, who was the K. We had known Quentin from a friend of ours, Scott Spiegel, who's a writer director, would have these barbecues on on the weekends or on Sundays. And that's where we met Quentin because he was friends with Quentin as well. And this is before Quentin was a, a writer. He was still working at the video store as a clerk. But he had such a great knowledge of film and we love movies. And so it was a, basically a barbecue of, of film fanatics. You know, one thing led to another and, and Bob had written an outline for a movie called From Dust Till Dawn he wanted to do. And he, he had, it was like a 25 page outline and, and, and he wanted to get a real writer to write it. So he had hired Quentin to do it. And up until that point, Quentin had never been paid to write. So this was Quentin's first paying job. And I, and I want to say we paid him uh, $1,500. And, and, uh, and I think Greg has the check still the canceled check or the check, wow. you know, that was endorsed. And, uh, and also we promised that if Quentin ever made his own movie, we would do the makeup effects for free. So Quentin wrote Dust Till Dawn. Bob took it out and shopped it around and nobody was interested because at that point there wasn't that Quentin Tarantino style, that very nonlinear storytelling. And all the notes that came back were really bad. Like, what is this, a horror movie or is it a gangster movie? And you can't write this way and this makes no sense and you can't jump around. It needs to be chronological. Nothing came of that. And then Quentin got financing to make his first movie. And we said, well, we'll live up to our bargain and we'll do the makeup effects for free and all the blood. And that movie happened to be um, Reservoir Dogs. So, and Bob did most of the set work on that because that was part of his deal. But we supplied all the blood, did all, you know, the ear chop thing and a whole bunch of other things that were through the course of the film. And Quentin finished the movie and he called us one night. He's like, hey, I'm going to have a screening in this, in Hollywood of this little, you know, in a little screening room. I want you guys to come see the movie. And we went to see it, not knowing what we were going to see. I mean, or expect it, you know, we knew what we were going to see, but. And we walked out and our, we were, our jaws were dragging on the ground. We couldn't believe how brilliant and magnificent it was. And we're like, oh my God, Quentin Tarantino is a magnificent writer. Mm-hmm. The next day, every single script Quentin ever wrote was, you know, everybody was clamoring for. Right. And Dust Till Dawn eventually was one of them. And anyhow, Quentin got it back, bought it back from, from whomever. And we ended up making, we ended up doing all the makeup effects. But what's great is Quentin loves practical things. And, and, and we have had to really think outside the box, like kill bill is a great example. So I oversaw that in China and here in, in LA when we shot, and that was a really, really long project, but really, really fun and, and a great learning curve. And I feel when you work with Quentin, he's a very um, demanding director, but that's okay. I like that. I like being pushed to the limit. And, and every day I'd go home exhausted, but I felt like I accomplished great things. Myself and my crew accomplished great things. So, you know, one of the things was the, the Lucy Lou, um, you know, uh, chop head thing. Mm-hmm. 
And in the first meeting, somebody said, well, that should just be digital. And Quinton threw a, a fit. He was so angry. He's like, that's not how it would be in the 70s. There isn't digital. And we're going to figure out how to do it practical. And da 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 That guy never was at another meeting, by the way. <laughs> and so Greg, Greg actually spearheaded the design of that makeup. And he, he, uh, we had a, uh, somebody who worked in our shop. His name is Garrett Emmel, who's a super talented artist and, and makeup artist. And he kind of came up with a way to do it as a forced perspective. So he sculpted the piece, if you're looking at it straight, that it looks like it, it goes all the way back, you know, so it was kind of like a pie-shaped appliance. It was really interesting. So my, so we did it and had a wig made and we went to China and that time that came up and, you know, Bob Richardson, who was the cinematographer, understood exactly how he had to shoot it because he's a genius. We rigged it up. It was myself and Chris Nelson and rigged it up and shot it and it worked perfect. And Quentin was like happier than a, you know, a clam was, it was just a great gag. And we did it all in camera, you know, and Quentin was right. But Quentin pushes you to do that. Like it would, it would be easy. He's like, yeah, you're right. That should be digital. Doesn't want to hear about digital. So, so much, even so that on Inglorious Bastards, which, which Greg Nicotero supervised, he handled that film. Uh, Quentin hired John Dykstra to do all the visual effects. And John Dykstra, in our, in my mind, and all of us, is really the king of visual effects. He is did the first Star Wars movie mm-hmm. and created the Dykstra Flex and figured out the look of that movie's visual effects are all, you know, John Dykstra. So it was like an honor to have Dykstra. But what, of course, Quentin would go that route. I'm going to hire the best, you know, practical special effects, visual effects guy in the world. And then my stuff will be great. Like that mini, like, like it was a miniature of the, the um, theater burning at the end of uh, Inglorious Bastards. And that's a miniature that John had built and shot and all that stuff. And it was all in camera and it was genius. And, you know, if you had done that fit with visual effects, it would have felt different. It would have been right. different. You know, Quentin's good with seeing, seeing the, the edge of the, you know, miniature or whatever. He'd rather see that. Like even the, the, you know, in Kill Bill, the airplane flying over Tokyo looks like a model. It's supposed to look like a model, but he'd rather do that than like a realistic CGI version because it's just, it fits within the context of the movie he's making. Again, in the seventies, they didn't have CGI and that's what he's always thinking. Um, So yeah, and, and working on his movies, everything grows and grows and grows. Like you know, Greg will go and have a meeting with Quentin and come back. It's like, ah, it's not a lot of stuff in this one, you know? And then of course, by the end of the movie, we're doing tons of stuff. There's tons of gags and mechanical horses or a mechanical dog, or somebody gets, you know, a, a blowtorch, you know, torch to death and floating in the pool. So it always builds and builds through the course of the show. And since Quentin has very long shoots, um, it's great because it's not like, oh, we're going to do this in two months or three months. We, we start building and building and building and testing and testing. And sometimes there's, there's uh, times where we'll, build, we'll test and build and build for months. And then Quentin will change it and go like, I want to do something different. I was thinking, or I had a dream last night. And then what you've been spending four months on goes into the crapper. And then you rethink it all over again. But when he rethinks it, it's 10 times better. So you don't, you don't argue with them. You don't go like, oh, come on, Quentin, this is done. We just should shoot it. You go, okay, tell me what the idea is. And then it's our job to figure out how to do it. 
And, and, uh, and it just makes you feel like when you see it on the screen, you're like, ah, this is so much better. It's, it just tells you everything like this. And it's for the benefit of the storytelling. That's what it is. It's not about, Hey, stop. Let's look at this effect. Okay. Let's start the story again. It all has to integrate. And that's the thing. That's part of our job, you know, be it makeup effects or visual effects or anything. You have to integrate it into the storytelling. If you don't, then you haven't done your job properly. It all has to work as one. So, so there you go. That's my, those are my stories about Quentin Tarantino. That's amazing. And speaking of nonlinear storytelling, I, you, you started to get me towards that direction. So I had to ask about him and about at working with him, but I want to go back a little bit because there is one thing that you and I, I think have in common. And that is of all the universal monster movies, our favorite is creature from the black lagoon. I think yeah. that that is such an underserved and underrated of the universal monster movies. What is it about the effects in that film that helped lead you down that path to decide to start to look at makeup and those other universal monster movies as well? Well, I think for me, it was about design, you know, like not that I had an idea when I was a little kid of like, Oh, I like that design, but there was something that felt, you know, unique about it. There's something about the creature in the black lagoon. I just love, I like it's, it's, I still think it's a flawless monster. You know, if they were going to remake it, I would hope that they would just go with the same exact design and recreate that exact suit. There's no reason to change it, in my opinion. You know, it's pretty inventive. Uh, you know, it's like the gills move when, you know, Rico Browning, who played the creature, and, and ben, uh, ben Chapman played the creature as well. There are two people that played the creature. Rico did the uh, underwater and Ben did all the on land stuff. But, um, you know, it's moving and it's just, there's close-ups and it's just, it just looks so great. You know, and I love the scales and I don't know, there's just something about the creature that just I, I love and I love the movie. It's a real simple film. It's mm -hmm. basically Beauty and the Beast, you know, and, and the thing I've always, you know, felt about monsters is, and I've said this before, that they're, I always look at them as victims of circumstance, like monsters aren't bad. They're in their environment. Like the creature was happy living in the Amazon until these idiots showed up, pull them out of the Amazon, take them to SeaWorld. And then, of course, it's going to go to custard. You know, right. it, only, it can only be a trouble, you know, and and, uh, you know, be a King Kong, be a guy. Just leave the monsters alone. Frankenstein's monster. He didn't want to be reanimated. You know, here he is. And then, you know, I'm, a matter of fact, I'm, I'm rereading Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein now because it's been so long. And it's such a great book. If anybody hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. It's very, very rich with with um, things you you just didn't think about or that's not part of any of the movies or anything you're used it's to so much different than the universal movies so because it gives such an emotion to because that was uh, it was actually just a couple of years ago was the first time that i had listened to it um not yeah. read it i just really read slowly but uh they have a version where dan stevens is doing the creature the, the monster oh, wow. and it's so amazing because it's just like he has such emotional weight to him that you don't yeah. get that. You get that a little bit more, I guess, than Bride of Frankenstein, but not nearly to the extent of the original novel. Right. No, absolutely. They're very, very different. Uh, you know, her, her, uh, her novel is very different than the, the film. Uh, but yeah, no, it's great. So anyhow, I mean, I, you know, co you know, looking at all the Universal Monster stuff and, you know, learning about Jack Pierce, who created the Wolfman on Lon Chaney and, and Frankenstein's monster and Karloff and the mummy on Karloff and just all these amazing makeups that he had done were just so, so thrilling and, and rich and fresh. And I mean, he really was brilliant, a brilliant makeup artist and, and, and inventor and innovator. And um, I don't know, there's just something about those movies that struck me, you know, and also I like the fact that they're about an hour and a half, you know, I'm, I, I'll, I'm good with whatever movie, if a movie has to be a certain length to tell the story, great. It's when 
you know, you're sitting in a three hour movie and it could have been an hour and a half. That's mm-hmm. a little much for, and I'm like, this movie just needs some, somebody needs to give this, the, the director some scissors. But, um, but I love the fact that those movies are just structured to, you know, sit and watch them, enjoy them. And then, you know, off you go. But I was pretty obsessed with monsters and I, I, all through my childhood, you know, really like pretended I was a monster or like I would dress up like Dracula or I would think I was pounding my chest as King Kong or, you know, whatever it was. I just, I terrorized all my sisters. I have three sisters and terrorized them uh, as a monster all through my childhood. And um, so, yeah, monsters were my friends. They're still my friends. Uh, You know, people always say, oh, do you have nightmares about that? I'm like, no, I never have nightmares about things I create. I never have monster nightmares. I have nightmares about other things. Like actually my biggest reoccurring nightmare is that I can't find my makeup kit when I'm on set. And, <laughs> and I don't know what happened. I brought it and then somebody moved it. Cause sometimes on sets you'll set your stuff up and then the rest of the crew, they have no consideration. So like if they have to put a light or a camera equipment, they just move all your stuff. And I'm always like, where the hell did you, don't touch my stuff. You, if you'd like, I'll, I'll move your camera somewhere. Right. Put my chair here. So have the same respect. Like, oh yeah, you're right. We didn't think of that. I'm like, of course not. Cause you're being inconsiderate. But it, my reoccurring nightmare is I'm always with an actor who's like, and usually it's Mark Wahlberg day. The truth and he's like, Hey, Howard, I, today I want like a black eye. And I'm like, Oh shit. And I got to find my makeup kit. I don't know where it's at. And I remember, and this happens again, I've everyone, I'm looking around and I see there's a fireplace we're like shooting in a house and I find some charcoal that's in the fireplace and I use that to make the black eye. Mark's like, yeah, this looks pretty good. Not knowing that I didn't know where my makeup kit was. And then I used a piece of charcoal out of the fire pit and I'm like, God, I got to find the makeup kit. And then Mark's all day long with the charcoal black eye, like, you know, Petey, the dog from the, you know, little rascals, but it works. And then I find my makeup kit at the end of the dream. And like, it was underneath a coffee table. I'm like, who the hell put my, <laughs> anyhow, that's a constant reoccurring dream I have. And I wake up and I tell my wife, I'm like, I just had another dream about making up Wahlberg. And the one time he wants makeup on, I don't know where my kid is. <laughs> so yeah, that's it's amazing. A it's a weird, well, crazy dream. I'm glad you mentioned you as a kid and uh, kind of acting out these monsters, because I've noticed in other interviews, you talk about wanting to be a monster when you were a child. And so now you've done, it's incredible, the amount of work that you've done and the projects that you've worked on. So this might be a tricky question, but is there a monster or some creature that you've worked on that you feel like you would most want to embody now that you're an adult? (laughs) Yeah, actually. Um, You know what? I really, really love, I love um, the Minotaur uh, General Ottman that we did for the first Narnia. And that kind of was a combination of two of my favorite things. It was, it's a combination of a gorilla because I love gorillas. I love, I love them. I think they're magnificent animals and, um, and, and where the wild things are, which is also another big influence in my life where my mother read me that book all the time. And I wanted to be Max and I wanted to run and have a rumpus with the wild things. And I thought this was a great opportunity. I'm going to mix the two, two of my favorite things. And that's how I, kind of came up with the the idea of how I was going to approach um, General Ottman, which was worn by Shane Rangi, who's a, a New Zealand actor. Yeah, that's, I have to say, it's one of my most favorite things. I really love that character a lot, you know? I mean, there's so many things I, I, I have. I looked at my phone. I have 40,000, I kid you not, 40,000 photos on my phone. Wow. And, it's, and most of them are all work-related, just from sets and things. And I'm like, just that. And I think I, this is like the iPhone 13 or whatever. And so it hasn't been that long that I've had it. And somehow I've accumulated 40,000 photos of stuff that goes way back. But uh, 
I look through it and I go, wow, this is just a very small glimpse of what I've done. And it's massive. And I think about like all the stuff I've done prior because I'm rounding my 40th year in the film industry. I started when I was 18 years old, right out of high school. And so, you know, it's been a, it's been long. It's been a long, long time. And I've done a lot of stuff. And Greg and I talk a lot about like legacy. Like when the time comes when we're like, you know what? I think it's time to, you know, take a break. I think it's maybe time to call it a day, which will happen eventually. And I think the legacy we leave behind, a portion of it, of course, is what, what we've done for film, you know, what we've contributed to movies and TV and so forth. But I think what's more important to me is leaving the legacy of how I treated people and how I made people feel about themselves in a good way, not a negative way, and it helped inspire people to get to where they are today. And so, like, the work will always be the work that will always remain because it's, you know, on film or on digital or what have you but you know your your memory uh, stays alive I feel based on people telling stories about you you know through the years and and I hope that I I've left some great stories and I hope that I've made a difference in a lot of people's lives and that you know when I'm gone or what have you they'll still talk about me and like oh yeah you know Howard Berger was great or you know Greg Nicotero was such a nice guy when he did this or that and you know, those are the things I think are far more important. So many people focus on like, you know, I want to leave a, uh, you know, this legacy of film work. That's fine. That's great. I mean, we are, we are, Greg and I are there already, but I think it's just very, very important to, to leave a legacy of, of kindness and things that you've done for other people. That's really, really important. And I've always, it's a lesson my dad taught me early on, which is, you know, treat others the way you wish to be treated, which is the golden rule. In theory, every human being should do that. For some reason, there's a lot of people that never learned that lesson. Um, But, you know, and I learned a lot from working for somebody like Stan Winston, you know, and Stan did Jurassic Park and Aliens and, and just so Predator, so many things that I got to work for Stan for years. And, and I knew him since I was a kid. And he was so kind to me when I was young. I met Stan when I was 12 years old. And his studio was about two miles away from my house. And I found out and I walked two miles with a box full of junk and knocked on the window of the door on the door and he answered it and I got to go in. And from that point on, I, I was able to stay in touch and go visit Stan uh, from time to time as long as I wasn't bothering him too much. And he was always very nurturing and took the time to talk to me. And that made a really big difference in my life as, as a young, as a child and a teenager. And then as I became an adult and I worked for Stan, the kindness continued and, and his devotion to his crew and knowing that it's the crew that is really makes it all happen, which is true. And same here at k and we have great, great people. Greg and I are very good at what we do, but we would not be able to do all of it by ourselves. You know, we have to have a great crew when we're on set, we hire great people to work with us, you know, and, and, and strengthen our skills and our talent and, you know, all that good stuff. So anyhow, it's, it's just all about that. And to me, it's, it's, you know, I, I made a promise when I was a kid that if any, if I ever got to a position where, where people wrote me letters and asked me questions, I would always write back because there are a few people I wrote to through the course of my, my young years that I never, ever heard back. And I would write letter after letter after letter, and that just went unanswered. And I, I, that was kind of hurtful because I'm like, wow, I'm, I just want to know, or I want to have just a but that's cool. You know, they made that decision, but I promised I would never do that. Of course, it's become a bit of a curse because I get tons and tons of emails, tons and tons of letters, and I answer all of them 
because it's really, really important. And when I, if I go to a place like, you know, IMAT or Monster Palooza or, you know, anything that's kind of makeup effects related monster stuff, and there's people there that want to talk, I always stop and I talk and I look at the portfolios and I give them the time because I know how I felt when that didn't happen. And I know how it felt when that did happen. And I want to just pass that along and hope that maybe the kid that I'm talking to right now is going to be the next Rick Baker, you know, down mm-hmm. the line, who knows, you know? And, and it's like, don't, you know, just cause he's young and maybe his stuff isn't that great. He, he loves it, you know? And I've heard from kids that I've met when they were little and I've heard from them when they're older and they're like meeting you changed everything because you were, you stopped and you, you took the time to like, look at me and listen and looked at my book and gave me constructive criticism and was so friendly and took a picture and all that. And I'm like, yeah, that's what we should all be doing as human beings. Stop and listen to people. It's, it's really important. Stop, stop worrying so much about what you want to say and listen. And that's something I've had to learn, by the way. It's not something I was always good at. I was always thinking about like what I wanted to say, probably like what I'm doing right now. And, uh, and, um, and, uh, but now I think I'm a better listener and I stop and listen. And actually, I learned a lot of that from Greg Nicotero, who's, who's an excellent listener. And I watched and I realized this over the years. If I have something to say and talk to him, he is looking directly at me and absorbing everything I'm saying. And I was like, I need to do that more. And it really, really taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about that. And he's a great listener. And then that gives him time to process and give me the feedback that I may need, opposed to like not really listening to what I'm saying and waiting to say what he wants to say. He, absorbs it all. And I really, really try to do that. I'm not nearly as good as he is at it, but, but I'm, uh, I'm learning. So. It's just amazing too. I mean, I, I want to continue on this idea of mentorships. You spoke about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. One of the entry points for a lot of people right now was the sci-fi show face off, which literally could put makeup artists competing against each other. But yeah. I, when I talked to Donald, he mentioned the idea of mentorships and how that's really important for the industry to be able to get more people on. And he actually mentioned he loves he loved working on Moon Knight because Marvel has the money. Disney has the money to have a, a larger crew so he could bring right. more people into the fold. And so just talk about that idea of mentorships as well. I know yeah. you've mentioned the kindness aspect, but what is it you you start you got your start on Aliens, which is incredible. Uh, but what is it that uh, is important to you about the concept and the idea of making sure you do pass that on to the next generation through sure. mentorships? Well, you have to pass the baton. You know, I mean, that's my biggest concern right now is like, who are we passing the baton to? You know, as we're all getting older and the industry is getting harder to work work in. Um, we're not young that anymore, so it's tough. Um, I wish the studios still had mentorships and internships rather. Uh, that would be great. Why that ever stopped is beyond me. And this is an interesting thing. I was on a really big show at Warner Brothers, and I was being asked to make sure I hired a very diverse crew. And I said, well, makeup and hair is always diverse. You know, you don't need to tell us that. We're, we're you know, be it, be it Local 706, which is my, my uh, local for uh, IATSE Union that we're all in, makeup and hair, or be it the Academy and, and being uh, the makeup and hair branch. That world is very, very diverse. I mean, it's crazy. It's everybody under the sun. Uh, so much more than any other craft or, or branch or local. I said to the producer, I said, I'll tell you what, no, it would be great. It's like, I'm going to, I always hire diverse. So that's not an issue. But what would be great is if you actually invested the time and money into an internship program 
during the shoot. It was like a five or six month shoot. And it was all here in LA. And I said, why don't we do that? Why don't you hire four people per department and that will give people opportunity and they shadow us and can work with us. Obviously they can't do makeups or anything because they're not union, but they can learn. And I put that in the, in the hand of the producer who was diverse to follow through with that. And sadly they never did. And I was like, okay, I've given you guys a great idea and a great opportunity. And this is something we can start to spin. And perhaps this can be something that's just a norm. You know, we keep talking about, like, we need to bring, you know, we need to give these people more opportunity or give, you know, people in general more opportunity. It's like, I can't facilitate that because I don't have, I'm not in charge. And now with the COVID world, you know, which the industry is going to stay by those COVID protocols, I think for a long, long time, Mm -hmm. it's not just going to end one day. It's like, all right, if you're not vaccinated, you can come back to work and don't wear those stupid masks. Just think that's never going to happen. I think that's going to be a norm in our industry. But, you know, with that said, you know, there's, there's, of course, it's all about money. So, you know, you, you can't have, you know, or the studio is going to be like, well, we can't test all these additional people because that's going to be an extra $300,000. And I get that. But then you can't ask us to do something, ask us to facilitate something, but yet you're not willing to help facilitate our needs to do it. We're all up for it. You know, if it's all good with everybody else, every craft is good. Yes, we'll have you be a PA. I try to have a PA on every show. And then, and I've, and my PAs have, you know, taken the, re- the reins and run with it and have become union makeup artists and have become creators and inventors. And it's, it's really, really wonderful to nurture those people. But the fight you have to go through with the studios to get somebody in as a PA because they, you know, God forbid they have to pay, pay them $700 a week. And, you know, that'll just break the bank of the film uh, is ridiculous. And, and these are the things. So all these conversations that the industry is having about internships and mentors, more mentorships is really the word, not internships, but more mentorships. The studios aren't willing to facilitate it. And I, I mean, it's like you ask us to do this over and over again, but you have to help us financially. And, 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 you know, it's just too many obstacles. So it's not anybody in the industry other than, in my opinion, the studios are being very um, conservative or limiting, or I I don't know what it is, but it gets very frustrating. I'm tired of hearing about it and nothing's happening, you know, and people like Donald really, really pushes the envelope. I mean, what was great with, with uh, Moon Knight is that they shot it in the UK and the UK doesn't have unions. So it's, it's much easier to do that. It's much easier for Donald to utilize talent that, that is, and mentor, you know, I know he's very, very big on that. <clears throat> a lot of people are, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Aaron Kruger, who's a great, great um, makeup artist and, and department head um, really does a lot of that as well. And really fights for, you know, having a, having a production assistant or on the show so they can teach them and learn and all that. It's just, you fight with the studios about it. There's, they always have some sort of lame excuse and it's like, well then stop asking me to do it. And you guys aren't willing to step up to the plate. Um, but to answer the question, yeah, I think it's important. You know, I mean, the, also the, you know, the thing here at like K and B people always ask like, Oh, can I come in? I'd love to, we can't facilitate that one because of the COVID situation. <clears throat> and two, as I cough, I say COVID and then I cough. It's like Pavlov's dog. Right. Um, and um, 
The other thing is that we work so fast and furiously here because studios give us such a very small amount of pre-production time now. We have to, uh, we just don't have time. I can't, ha- I can't afford to slow people down to get, to be teaching. It's not, they're not here right now to teach. So it's, it's, it's really kind of a difficult situation. You know, if you have the opportunity, that's great. If you try to have the opportunity, that's great. And if you have, if there's hurdles that, that you, that and blockades that are from the studio, you just, you can't do anything about it. It's too bad. I do want to go back just a moment and talk about some of your projects. You mentioned Narnia, and I oh. should mention to our audio listeners that right over your right shoulder is your Academy Award, and that uh, is something pretty incredible to be able to see. And I, I hate, I, I try in my soul not to ask what, uh, what was it like style of questions, but I almost have to in this instance to say, you know, here you are sitting there with Tammy Lane, with your partner uh, on this project. And you've got Will Ferrell and Steve Carell up there and kind of a bad makeup, a, a bit of a joke for it. And then you get that name. Your name is called for that project for the Academy Awards. What does that feel like uh, from someone in your perspective being able to get that recognition of your work? Well, I, I love the Academy Awards. I always did. My dad and I watched them all through my childhood. We never, ever missed Academy Awards together. I always thought, wow, that's would be cool. You know, I never thought it would be nominated or even who knows what I thought. But when that happened, it was pretty amazing. And you don't do a show, you don't do a movie thinking like, this is my Oscar. Like, that's the wrong way to think. And there are people that think that way and, and nothing comes of it because it's just a, a ridiculous reason to be working. Like, I just hope this is it. This, this is it. This, and it's like, stop, stop. Be it an Emmy, be it a BAFTA, be it a Oscar, be it what have you. That's the award stuff's all gravy, you know. You do mm-hmm. a good job, but what's nice is that really your nomination is really what is the most important thing because that's your peers alone voting for you. Makeup artists and hairstylists voting that this movie should move forward to nomination. And that's pretty spectacular. So yeah, when I found out about it, it was overwhelming of course found out about it like at 5 30 in the morning the producer of the movie mark johnson called me and he's like hey howard you guess what you got nominated and i was like you know i got all teary-eyed of course because it was just meant so much to me uh just the institution of the academy so anyhow when you're sitting there waiting for your name to be called or see whose name is going to be called and the thing is i was one of my best friends, Dave Anderson, was I was nominated against. He did a film called Cinderella Man. And it was uh-huh. he and his father, Dave and Lance Anderson. And then that year was also the Star Wars, the Revenge, Revenge of, the of the Sith. Yeah, yeah, right. Dave Elsie and all. And uh, anyhow, I mean, you're sitting there and you're just breathing and your heart's pounding out of your chest. And they go in, you know, and, the, and you know. They announced the movie and they announced your name. And I knew we had one minute to get up there and do the speech. So I grabbed Tammy's, Tammy Lane's arm. I'm like, come on, we got to go. And we kind of shuffled up there. And then Will and Steve were up there with the crazy makeup that they had done on themselves, said the speech. And, you know, unfortunately your time runs out and Tammy, you know, and Tammy and I talked about this prior. I'm like, they only, and they say only one of you speak. Not we, you can't have a whole bunch of people. Nobody ever listens to that because everyone mm-hmm. wants to say their piece. And I said, Tam, I'm going to speak. We're just, we're going to, we agree on that. But, it, you know, it would have been great if she was able to speak. And I, and, um, but that didn't happen. But she'll do that next time she wins. And then I'll shut up and she can talk. 
But yeah, it was amazing. And, you know, you go backstage and I remember walking off stage and there was Morgan Freeman, who that year was announcing the, you know, a next up, you know, and I'm, and he's like, congratulations. I'm like, Oh my God, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> then I see Jennifer Aniston. And I'm like, Oh my God, Jennifer Aniston. Cause I look such a friends fan, you know? And, and I looked at her and she looked at me, she's like, you won. I said, I love you, Rachel Green. And she, and she <laughs> came on over and, you know, gave me a hug and held the Oscar. And, and then uh, they shuffled us off upstairs to, to uh, press. And so it was Tammy, myself, Will, and Steve in the elevator. And Steve goes, I'm so sorry. You must feel like we're the worst. I said, are you kidding? You guys are the funniest people on earth. You, we couldn't have asked for anybody better. You guys are so magnificent. And we went up, we did press. And then afterwards, we're like, and then that night was just wonderful. After you win the Oscar, you, you, you got them out. We went like around to the bar and I ran into a bunch of friends that were there at the bar and they were so happy. I ran, I saw Uma Thurman and I just done kill bill with her and she ran over and gave me a big hug. <clears throat> and then um, I looked up and there was, um, uh, you know, just more and more people that were so happy and God, it was just, it was just so crazy. I saw, I saw Lee majors who played the $6 million man and he was there and he's like, Hey, congratulations. And I'm like, Oh my God, Lee majors. And I wanted everybody to hold the Oscar. And I went up to Lee majors. And I'm like, would you hold the Oscar for me? He's like, Oh my God, I've never held one. And I just went, and I was like, years later I met Lee and we've become friends. And so that's been like, I look on my phone and I was like, Oh, I got a text from Lee majors. And I always take a picture of it. And I'm like, I send it to all my friends. I'm like, look, the $6 million man just texted me. And at 58 years old, I'm still like out of my mind that I'm friends with Lee Majors. And I told Lee, I said, I, that pilot episode, I sat in front of the TV for like three hours, just in case I was afraid I got the time wrong and I didn't want to miss it. So, you know, it was on at like 7 PM on ABC, but I got, you know, I sat in front of the TV, like at 4 PM, just in case, but yeah, it was great. And then we went to the vanity fair party and met a tons of celebrities and kept handing our Oscars to be held. So that Oscar behind me, has been held by a ton of celebrities. And it, and I think that's what makes it great. Some people are like, no, no, I don't want anybody touching it. But I'm like, no, everybody, it just gives it that much good luck that all these people, you know, got to hold, like held this Oscar, you know. It was really a fun evening. And still, I mean, I still think about it. So the, I have to say the, the evening ended with Tammy, myself and our dates stopping off at this deli called Arts Deli. That's, that's unfortunate, or not Arts, sorry, Jerry's Deli, which unfortunately isn't around anymore. It closed during the pandemic, but they're open 24 seven. And we stopped and we uh, sat down in our tuxedos and our gowns and all that stuff, put our Oscars on the table and ordered corned beef sandwiches. And the wow. place was hopping at 3 a.m. And everyone came by and took pictures holding the Academy Awards. And that was really a special night. So that is so cool. It's, it's yeah. just great to see that, like to, to be able to hear that firsthand experience of what that is like, is just, uh, just incredible. And I, I do want to talk about your work with the Academy, but I want to ask about a couple of your other projects first. One of them being that I am a Disney guy. I actually host a whole podcast on Disney. I love Disney. And my wife is her favorite movie of all time bar none is the wizard of Oz. So if I didn't ask about Oz, the great and powerful, she would yell at me for sure, but you're, <laughs> you're going to have to take in that film, your challenge is to take these iconic classic looks. Everybody knows what the Wicked Witch looks like. Everybody has that image in their head. Right. How do you adapt that to your film and to your project to put your own sort of uniqueness on it while also maintaining that classic look? It was tough. You know, I mean, once Mila Kunis was cast, that's and prior to her being cast, we did a lot of digital artwork for options, you know, just picked a random actually Greg had the great idea of like why don't we make the makeup feel more like 
thirties, forties pinup girl, like glam, like glam, like a glamorous witch, you know, as far as the makeup, the, the, the period, make it a period style makeup. I thought that was a really great idea. So we kept playing, excuse me, we kept playing with those ideas. And I think we used uh, like Greta Garbo as our point of reference, you know, and all the artwork was on Greta Garbo and John Wheaton, who was our, our illustrator did all these beautiful pieces. And we would have weekly show and tells with Sam Raimi, who was the director. Anyhow, when Mila got cast, we started to rethink things and came up with the whole idea. And there was a lot to think, like, how do we deal with the hair? How do we deal with this? You know, and came up with the idea of like kind of the, the belclava that she wears, the black belclava. So we wouldn't have to deal with hair and hair flowing around and getting in her face and all that. And that was a really, really good way to do it. And it just kept developing. And I, I did a numerous amounts of tests on her double, uh, you know, different eye colors, different makeups, different looks, the whole, the whole thing. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was crazy. So, but yeah, it just finally came to fruition and we tried different greens. There was real specific greens, you know, that we weren't allowed to use because Disney owned the rights. I think they owned the rights to the book, but they didn't own the rights to the movie. So we right. had to be very careful where we went. But Mila was so wonderful. Mila Kunis, by the way, is like one of the greatest people on earth. And, I, and she made it, she made it so, um, so easy to, and I know she hated this makeup hated wearing it and you know because i saw her a, a year ago and she's like you know howie i hated wearing that makeup i hated it but you made everything so nice and you were so kind to me and you put up with and i said mila you were wonderful the whole time like i just knew you hated it i'm always poking at you and just you know you weren't allowed to eat this you weren't allowed to eat that you know and because the makeup was so delicate and it would deteriorate and, and sam raimi who i love and who i've done many movies with sam has no concept of time so he could say, oh, we're going to shoot that in a half hour. And then four days later, you get to it. So <laughs> a 14, 15 hour day, which is way too long for anybody to be in makeup and for any makeup to survive and then expect like, okay, buddy, we're going to do the close up now. I'm like, there are times I went up to Sam, I'm like, I can't let you shoot it. I'm sorry. It looks like crap. We got to start fresh tomorrow. Sam, it's been 14 hours. She's been in this. It's just falling apart right now. Like around the mouth area was where it really was an issue. I'm like, I can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about it. You know, it just, it just took a long time to come with the color and, and it, it, it went through a huge, huge, you know, testing thing. So, but we finally hit it. And even during the course of the movie, I changed it a couple of times, you know, which is you don't see, but I changed the way the materials, the way I applied it. It, it just went on and on and on. It was one of the hardest makeups I've ever done. And, and what made it so difficult was it had to be nice and clean every day. I always wanted to make sure Mila was really good. I made sure that she was not, she was only in the chair for an hour and a half at the most, at the most, because we had to cover her completely. And that, you know, and that, and that everybody was happy with the makeup, you know, it, it was, it was hard, but also I had to keep following, um, or uh, following uh, Mila everywhere. Because I was like, okay, I, I'm going to watch her because she's going to go and do this. Or she's going to do, like, in the beginning, I trusted her. And, like, I kept her eating Subway sandwiches or hamburgers, things that are greasy. And it just make the makeup fall apart. And I'm like, and she'd look at me like, I'm so sorry. I couldn't help it. They had ribs. <laughs> Mila. You know, like, one, one time she, uh, I walked on set. And it was late. It was second meal. And um, I smelled barbecued ribs. I'm like, oh, that smells good. And I'm like, oh, no. And I ran over. And I'm like, you didn't. She's like, no, I would never. And I'm like, okay. And so then it came time to do the shoot. And I go to do touch up. And I look and she has 
on the tip of her nose barbecue sauce. And I said, you said, she's like, I lied. Okay, I couldn't help it. They're barbecue ribs, Howard. How can you expect me to stay away from them? And I went to Sam. I said, we can't, we're not shooting the makeup tonight. We're done. Because I said, I can't, I can't fix it. And I didn't throw her under the bus. I just said, it's the, the makeup's ratty, Sam. It's been 15 hours, please. I said, save yourself some money and from di- cleaning it up digitally. And let's, let me read, let me, let me, let's do this close up hour one, please. And he agreed. He's like, okay, buddy. But yeah, Mila had barbecue sauce on the tip of her witch nose. And I'm like, it's so funny. It's great because I I do an awful lot of community theater and those costumers, they'll, they'll tell you, do not eat in costume, all of this. And then when they catch you, it is kind of like that. Like, oh no, (laughs) like you're a kid caught right-handed. I know it's so hard. And listen, we ask our, our actors to do so much that sucks. And I get it. Like I just did a show with an actor who's in a very big makeup and a lot of facial hair, white facial hair. And I'm like, you can't, you can't eat, you know, I mean, you can eat, but please be careful. And I make sure I take his mustache off before lunch. And then I'd see him after lunch. And sometimes I'd find little bits in the hair. And because it was all white hair, I'm like, if we get anything on it, we're in big trouble. You know, and he was great. He was great. He was super careful. He'd done this a bunch of times. So he knew the, the drill. We just tried to make it a lot easier for him, which I think it was this time. Yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. So but yeah, it was that was the hardest part is following Mila Kunis around for months and months and months. Like, I know I bugged the crap out of her, but I had to do it because I was like, she's going to go do something. She's going to go lay down or one time she took her own contact lenses out and put them in a glass of water and they were ruined. After she put the lenses in the water, I'm like, Mila, never do that. She's like, yeah. I was just trying to help. I said, you're not helping. <laughs> Luckily, I had like five pairs because I'm like, these. if one tore, so I didn't want to, you know, they were all custom hand-painted lenses. Wow. So, but uh, she's, that- I can't say enough great things about her. She, she really went the distance and she worked so, so hard on that movie and well, you know. I, I, I want to make sure I'm respectful of your time. I have so many other questions that I'm, I'm going to be going through, but I want to um, mention that I, I came to this realization after a conversation with Donald that perhaps part of your job is also a bit of therapy for these actors, right? Yeah. That are sitting in the chair and being yeah. able to have those conversations with you. And so how do you feel about that role that you take on uh, while you're doing this makeup and hair? Oh, absolutely. It's part of it. I mean, we're, I always say we're like the therapist slash bartender, you know? Yeah. And, and actors, yeah, Donald's right. I mean, any makeup, any good makeup artist who, and you know what, this is part of like what we are, need to learn and what the people need to learn is it's not just about us. You need to be conscious and considerate of the person in your chair. Because sometimes I've seen makeup artists do makeups and the makeups are great, but have zero consideration for the actor. And, you know, in terms of the length of the makeup, how long the makeup takes to put on, how much, it takes, you know, how much poking, there's a human being in there and they don't want to be poked all day long. So, you know, or looked at every take and you just got to be a little more aware of your surroundings and, and who you're dealing with. So, but I make sure my trailer is very, very welcoming. You know, the, the actor starts his day with us and he ends or he or she ends, ends their day with us. And it's, um, I want to make sure it's they're comfortable and they're they're welcome. And I always can tell when an actor feels really good about our department is when they come in when they don't have to, hmm. like be it at lunch and they just come in and want to hang out or they show up early, you know, like hey, I just wanted to get in the trailer, you know, because I try to make the trailer feel like a home and and you know and I have always an espresso maker in there. I all, I know what they all drink. I make sure when I hear them coming. 
uh, I start to make their coffee for them or their tea or whatever they want. And they come in and they have it. And it's just so nice. Cause usually like the PAs will like, can I get you coffee? And they're like, sure, I'll take a cup. And it's like brown water with right. cream. And, and it's just, I'm like, you're not drinking that crap. So I throw, I said, don't order coffee from any PA the rest of the show. If you want coffee, come here, we'll make you a, a whatever you want. And so they love that. And, you know, I've had actors who have said at the end of the show, like, I'm always nervous about going to a makeup trailer the first day because I don't know what the vibe is. Usually it's always intense and there's TVs and it's loud. I'm like, no TVs. We'll put some music on that's just background music. There's nothing crazy. This is your time, too, to sit in the chair and prepare yourself for what your day is. So I'll do my work and, and leave you alone. Like, I don't start conversations if the actor wants to talk. I'm more than willing to have a conversation, but I'm like, so what'd you do this weekend? That's not what it's about. You know, or like, Hey, know what I did this weekend? It's like, no, 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 no. Just be quiet. Actresses sound like good morning. You know, you doing good. Yeah. You want anything? Nope. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and start. And then you do the makeup and, you know, sometimes it could be 10 minutes. Sometimes it could be an hour and a half. Sometimes it could be two hours, depending on what the makeup look is. And you also learn to work with your makeup and, or your hair department too. You have to work under, I would say, work under the one umbrella. And there's a makeup artist. He's not around anymore. His name was Dan Strepek. And he really taught me a lot of valuable lessons. And, you know, it's like everybody works together. It's all about, it's not like there's a hair department and a makeup department. You're all one department and you're there to service production, take care of your actor and make sure they're well. So, yeah, you, you so going back to what you were asking is that you, you do have a lot of responsibility to the actor. And also the actor, you know, you create 50% of the character and then the actor brings it to life in front of the camera. So you want to work together. You want this to be, you know, a partnership. It's, it's really important. And, and I've co-created things with actors, you know, and I've had actors, you know, trust me and ask me questions and, and for feedback and, you know, but I always like when I'm doing makeup, I'm like, what do you think? It's like, well, I, I don't know. It's your makeup. I'm like, no, no, it's your makeup. You're not going to be on the screen 50 feet tall. So do you like this? Is there anything you want to change? Is there, shall we try something else? I said, I'm, I'm open to whatever you want to do. You know, I understand what the production wants, but I need to make you happy most of all. So it's, it's, it's a very important relationship to have. Uh, and that, and that's not to be confused by the way, which some people do like, oh, we're best friends. Oh yeah. Hmm. I'm friends with. I find it's very safe to not be friends with actors. Like I, you can be friends, but you're not like when you're on a show, don't like, Hey, we should go to dinner. Hey, we should go have drinks. Hey, we should, that doesn't fly. And I think that you overstep the line and you're going to create a problem because at some point something's going to go wrong. And then that's going to be the end of your working relationship or something's right. going to sour. And I've seen that happen numerous times. It's like, you're not best friends. You're here to do a job. And yes, you can be friendly, but, I don't want any of my crew like going out for dinner, going out for drinks with actors. I just don't like it. I don't do it. I, just, I think it's, it's, it's invades their privacy. Most actors are so nice. If you went like, Hey, you want to have a drink? They're like, uh, okay, sure. Yeah. Right. That sounds great. And it's for you to feed your ego. Like, Hey, I went out with so-and-so or I went out with so-and-so that's not my cup of tea. And um, I just like to keep the, you know, when I'm at work, we're working together as partners when I'm home, I'm with my wife having a great time doing whatever, you know, and, and that's, that's, I don't really let the worlds cross. And I think it's important. There's too many makeup artists up and coming and some that are already here that think that they should have personal relationships. I had one makeup artist recently go like, Oh yeah, you know, we we became really great friends. And I'm like, that's the death. 
That's mm. the that's the dumbest thing you can do. I just I just don't subscribe to that sort of mentality, and I think it's a dangerous thing. So you are the first member of the Academy Board of Governors I've ever had the pleasure to speak with. So I have to ask about this and uh, your role in the Academy and how you came to represent makeup artists and hairstylists. Well, being a first getting asked to be part of the Academy was overwhelming to me. And, and just so it's clear, you don't win an Oscar or get nominated and get into the Academy. That's not how it works. Um, a lot of people think like, Oh, well, you're going to get in because you won an Oscar. No, mm. I won an Oscar. And I didn't get in for like three years, you know, and, and there's a whole process and sponsorship and all that. I finally got in and uh, I was overjoyed. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a mission for me to be as involved as, as possible because I love movies, because I love the film industry. I love to perpetuate the positive aspect of all of it best I can. And at one point I said, I'm going to run for governor. I want to be one of the governors and and in each branch, there's 17 branches in the Academy and there's three governors per branch. It used to be one governor per branch, but it was, the work is so overwhelming. Like I I feel like being a governor is like a full-time job. It's an, I have two jobs. I have this job here, either at K&B or on set. And then I work for the Academy. I don't, you don't get paid by the way. It's a, it's a volunteer position, but you put a hell of a lot of hours in. If you are a dedicated governor, and, and if you're, you're always engaged and I, I'm, if I take something on, I'm a hundred percent in, like, I don't half-ass things. I try not to. Um, but the Academy has always been important to me. So, you know, you, I just served my first term, which is three years. And I just got re- reelected to be a governor for my second term, which is wonderful. I'll do three more years. And, um, currently my, uh, my, um, other governors are Will, Bill Corso, who's a great, prolific, Oscar-winning makeup artist, and Linda Flowers, who's a, um, a prolific uh, hair uh, designer. Uh, she did uh, Hunger Games and works with Glenn Close all the time, and I mean, and she's just a wonderful, wonderful person. I love her dearly, and I and Bill Corso is wonderful. And prior to this, when the when the um, when the branch began, we had a really magnificent pres or a, a governor. His name was Leonard Engelman. Leonard's still around. Leonard's been around for a hundred years and uh, actually he's been around for 81 years. So he's wonderful. And, uh, and then we had a, another uh, governor, uh, Lois Burwell, who's another Oscar winner for Braveheart and she's magnificent. So we've had, and Kathy Blondell, sorry. And Kathy Blondell, who just recently retired, she, she uh, was, uh, did a hundred movies and um, was, ended her career with Leonardo DiCaprio for years and years and years. We've had some really great prolific, wonderful, engaged, dedicated uh, governors in the, in the short period of time where that the branch has been around, but yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I love it. I love being a governor. I love helping my branch members with things they need from answering questions about why or why is this, or how does this work or how do you nominate or how do you do this to, I can't get the app, the, uh, the Academy app working on my Apple TV (laughs) and then I'll go over and I'll help them get it going. So yeah, it's great, you know, and and I feel Bill, myself, and Linda are, are very good. We work very, very well together. And and uh, what's nice is we've got a couple more years together, so that'll be very nice. But it's it's a great honor to serve the academy. And and listen, I know the academy has had a lot of bumps and hiccups, and 
you know, it always does. It always will, but it's all in good intentions and everybody there loves the Academy and loves the reason. And, you know, it's always trying to figure out what's going to be best for the institution. And that's really what we have to keep in mind. I mean, the Academy has been around for 95 years and this will be this coming up uh, next year will be the 95th Oscar awards. You know, that's big five years away from 100. So that's pretty amazing. You know, we just got to keep it going. And there's great, great governors and members in every branch. So it's it's a very exciting thing. And I I pinch myself every time I go to a governor's meeting and who's sitting in that room is everybody I grew up admiring and and people that I admire now. But, you know, when you're sitting across from Steven Spielberg, you're I, I don't even know what to do. I'm like, I got <laughs> I can't act like an idiot. I want to go over and just bow down to him and tell him every movie he's made has inspired me beyond words. But you're like, oh, hi, Stephen. How are you? It's good. And you're like, oh, my God, it's Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I can't wait to go see the Academy Museum that just opened recently. Oh, yeah, Once I'm out there in California, it's going to be definitely a stop that I have to make. I do Please. want to ask, you know, you mentioned about some of the, the decisions and the bumps and, and things like that. Can you walk me through a bit of that process last year of taking some of those categories off of the uh, main telecast and well, make up a yeah. hair with one of those? And so I'm just wondering yeah. if you had anything, that, any insights into that. I do. I mean, listen, it's, there's always there's always new things to try and to um, make the make the uh, the the show better or enhance it or and listen, it was something that that we all agreed to do. Uh, some people you know, there was a lot of blowback, of course, and it was public. You know what? If we didn't try it, we wouldn't know. And and in my opinion, it wasn't as successful as it could have been. I think the biggest problem was sometimes you have certain certain, uh, award winners who speak longer than the designated time, and that eats into the time for other awards. And unfortunately, hair and makeup's pre-recorded win was um, the last in the last bit and Linda Dow and, and Justin Raleigh uh, and Stephanie Ingram who won for Eyes of Tammy Faye. Linda gave probably one of the best speeches of all times and talks about the crew and, and uh, how important it was and is to have a crew behind you or else you can't make a successful product and a successful film that all got edited down to nothing. And it was really, really a shame. Um, and that was because time got gobbled up by certain mm-hmm. people and, you know, it's just the way it goes. I, I think that moving forward, there's going to be always changes, you know, and, and uh, I think they, you know, we have a, a new CEO, Bill Kramer, who was the president of uh, and the, and the um, CEO of the Academy Museum, which by the way is spectacular and, Bill took that and turned it upside down backwards and made this magnificent, iconic uh, museum that needed to exist a long, long time ago. But it just worked out perfect that Bill came in and just did such a wonderful job. And his staff, uh, Mariko and all the all of them were amazing. And, and uh, you know, I, I think I think it's, you know, Bill's going to change things. I think Bill's going to be great. You know, we had good leadership. We had great leadership with Don Hudson for so many years and she's wonderful. And, but now it's, it's a change. So, you know, and I think, I think we'll see what happens. I I have great faith as I always do. I always try to be positive. I try not to go, Oh man, this is going to be bad. It's not, I mean, only once in a while I'll say that, (laughs) (laughs) 
but uh, yeah, I think it's all exciting and I support anything with the Academy and, you know, and what happened with the pre-recorded stuff, I supported it. It didn't turn out the way we anticipated. It started off really great. The first hour I was like, this is going to work. I was sitting next to a fellow governor and we kept looking at each other like, okay, this is going to work. And then it just through other incidences during the mm-hmm. Oscars, it kind of fell apart. And that was unfortunate. And it was, it could have all been, it all could have run smooth if somebody decided to not do what they did. So, yeah, and streaming uh, offers that ability to maybe have that uh, more elongated ceremony from Absolutely. the original telecast and all yeah. that. I think that yeah. that's wonderful. You know, that that's a potential option in the future. Like you said, 100%. it's always evolving and always changing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, I mean, listen, broadcast is dying. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, I don't watch any broadcast i watch everything streaming i think i cut i cut my cable you know during the pandemic and i'm like why do i need cable like i made there's like two stations i watch so but i can stream everything and i'll just pay you know whatever i need to for my disney plus or my hulu or my whatever apple tv or prime or whatever and it's all there it's all there now i even look at all my collection of dvds i'm like I don't need any of these anymore. (laughs) Well, and I'll tell you, as a Disney fan, they're trying a live streaming event tonight uh, at the time that we're recording this. And I'm guessing that that is maybe one of those little tests that they're making to see what their live uh, streaming could be like. But before I let you go, just really quickly, uh, I know that you have a book coming out in September. It's Masters of Makeup, A Century of Practical Magic. And it looks incredible. Just the couple of images you could see right now in the pre-order. The pages are just gorgeous and beautiful. And so I'd love for you to talk just a bit about the book. Sure. Yeah. So Marshall Julius, who's my co-author and good friend, has been bugging me for 15 years to write a book with him. And I've always been so busy. But when the pandemic hit, he knew I wasn't going to do anything for five or six months. So he, he preyed upon me. We came up with this concept. And I said, well, you know, everybody else in the world isn't working. So I want to write a book. There was a book that I, I loved, I still love it, called Making a Monster. And I, I had it since I was a kid. And uh, it had all these, all these, it was basically like a biography. Each chapter was a biography on different makeup artists. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to interview a whole bunch of people, actors, directors, editors, VFX, um, makeup effects people, and get their stories and about makeup effects. And so I did, I interviewed Marshall and I interviewed 70 people and it was magnificent. I learned so much about people I've known my entire career. So, you know, we interviewed John Landis, we interviewed Ben Foster, James McAvoy, uh, Jamie Kelman, Mike Smithson, uh, Rick Baker, um, you know, Steve Wang, uh, uh, you know, Nick Dudman in in the UK, uh, Barry Gower from Game of Thrones. So really we interviewed a giant array of everybody, you know, uh, all different nationalities. Interviewed my friends uh, Luve and Eva from Sweden, who did uh, work with Donald and in, were instrumental in the Baron Baron Harkonnen makeup. And uh, and so I we gathered hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. I mean, we did about two to three hours per person, so seventy people we interviewed. And then it was Marshall's task to then edit it all down, transcribe it all, and then edit it down into quotes and things. And we had, there's 15 chapters in the book. Then it was my job after that to get as many photos from people that we haven't seen as possible. I ended up collecting 4,000 photos. Wow. And I have a lot of photos in my cache because I'm always shooting. So I was able to use a lot of my stuff, but also 
from everyone. The book has, I think, a thousand, maybe a little over a thousand photos. Hopefully a lot of people have never seen before. Definitely stories people have never heard before. And it's just an entertaining book. It's not a how-to. It's not a this. It's not a that. It's not a biography on one person or another. It's all intermixed. So like Richard Taylor tells a story about working on Lord of the Rings next to Jamie Kelman talking about working with Ben Foster on The Survivor. You know, so it's all intermixed. It all flows with the chapters, you know, super fun things. And it'll be out in September. So you can order it on Amazon.com. I'll also, if you live in L.A., uh, I have a book signing. Marshall and I have a book signing coming up at a place called Dark Delicacies uh, in um, Burbank on uh, September 18th. You can go to their website and take a look and pre-order a book there if you want. And then uh, the following weekend at the Academy Museum, we're having a book signing on the 24th. uh, And that'll be great, too. And we're going to have special guests at both book signings, contributors, um, that uh, are going to come out and sign with us, which will be great. So you can get your book signed. You know, I think at the at uh, Dark Delicacy, I think I have 20 of the contributors coming. So you can get 22 people to sign your book. At the Academy, we have a smaller space. There's a, a space limit. And I think I've got about 10 additional people coming that are going to be great. Uh, you don't want to miss that. And um, so, yeah, currently those those are our book signings for now. And then, like I said, you can pre-order on Amazon. Um, and it's, it's going to be great. I mean, it's really, really fun. I'm, you know, Donald's in the book. I didn't interview Donald and Donald's asked me like, why didn't you interview me? I said, You'll be <laughs> on the next one, Donald. But Donald is well represented by Ava and Luve. And, and I wanted to make sure like we, we wrote everything, Marshall and I, and I made, I wrote all the captions and I made sure it wasn't just like, you know, everybody got, I gave everybody the credit. I know I always missed when I saw a photo of like, Greg and myself with Tom Savini when we were for Tom Savini and it would just say Tom Savini da 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 and I'm like yeah but we're in the photo too that just showed that somebody didn't do their research since I know everybody it's like you know you know uh Luve and Ava work with you know building this uh this makeup was supervised by makeup department head Donald Boat you know who orchestrated the entire thing da 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 da, da. So I just want to made wanted to make sure everybody got their due diligence and, and and their recognition and that everybody hopefully people that read the book will go I now know who all these people are that I see their names on the screen at the end of the movie. So so yeah it's going to be a really really great a, a really great uh, uh uh book I think it's going to be wonderful. That's awesome and I have a birthday coming up September 20th so it's going to be on the top oh, of my list so definitely go and, go and check all that out and that's wonderful. It's just been so great to get to talk to you today. I had so many uh, other questions too on other projects that you've worked on. We didn't even talk about Walking Dead and all of that. I mean it's incredible the amount of work that you've done and the creativity and the art that you've put out in the world. And thank you again so much. You know you mentioned uh, when you have Lee Majors texting you on your phone and you're showing yeah. off to all your friends, sometimes uh, in these types of roles, it's easy to get a bit of that imposter syndrome. So when Donald had messaged me and said, hey, I really enjoyed the interview. Do you mind if I pass your information on to Howard? And then immediately you messaged back. I was uh, so giddy and showing everybody off <laughs> that. And, and just it's been just a, a treat to get to talk to you and a treat to get thank to you. learn more about the industry and everything else. So thank you so much for sure, your time. Thank today. you so much. No, it's great. This was great. And thank you so much for the opportunity.
I can't begin to say thank you enough to Howard for his time. I actually went over on my time with him and he was so grateful to answer those questions because I had other questions about working on the Orville and working with Seth MacFarlane. He also has uh, worked with Guillermo del Toro as well. And those other amazing directors that have such a true visual look to what they do and those practical makeup effects that they do. It's just uh, remarkable the amount of work he's done. He has nearly 200 credits on IMDb. He's just someone that is so prolific isn't the word. Really, there needs to be like a, a movie on him because here he is, a kid growing up in Hollywood, his dad working in the film industry, and his parents being so supportive of him. And then going to that studio at 12 years old and knocking on the door and Stan Winston opening it up and then listening to him. And then he also talked in other interviews about his work with Rick Baker and getting to a chance to meet him at a young age. And then now he's looking at the industry and seeing what has to happen next. What's the next evolution to keep this craft going? And just an amazing chance to get an opportunity to speak with him. And he does have that book coming out in September. I can't uh, tell you enough how quickly I pre-ordered it immediately because it is visually stunning just from the few images that you're able to see when you go and do the pre-order. So make sure that you go ahead and check out Masters of Makeup, A Century of Practical Magic. And you can find that again on Amazon, or I'm sure you can also find it on those independent bookstores too, if you'd like to do that. And yeah, if you're one of our listeners that happens to be in the LA area, Holy moly, could you imagine being able to go to the Academy Museum to have a book signing for that? Just that sounds remarkable and incredible all rolled into one. I do also want to mention, just in case he's listening back, we talked about him a lot in this interview, but this is directly because of Donald Moat and his uh, confidence in me and passing that information along to Howard. And so I do want to make sure I say thank you to him again. If you happen to be listening to us for the first time, we have lots of different shows here on the Front Row Network. I'm going to tell you about mine because I'm the guy in front of the microphone. I host a weekly Disney show called Beyond the Mouse where we dive into all things Disney. And that could be the parks, that could be the movies, that could be really anything that we want to talk about. We've also interviewed several Disney legends and other people that are involved in the company. Really would appreciate if you go check that out. I also do host a bi-weekly Ted Lasso show, and that will come back to a weekly show once season three gets up and running. But we talked a lot about kindness today and the need for kindness. There is no better show to exemplify what kindness can mean and can be than Ted Lasso. So I definitely would say to go check that out. That's called Peanut Butter and Biscuits, and you can find that on any podcast feed as well. I think some of my classic listeners uh, that Brandon would like to uh, listen, they would love this chat and talking specifically about those Universal Monster movies. But then also, this, his career to me is really in the wheelhouse of front row flashbacks. And I know that a lot of their listeners too might appreciate some of the insights that he was giving into creating those practical effects and those practical monsters that we all came to love and to grow up with. Incredible, incredible morning, amazing way to start my week uh, here. And I just can't thank Howard enough for his time and his talent. If you do want to continue to follow the Front Row Network, make sure you search for the Front Row Network wherever you find podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook as well. We're on Twitter. So go and check those out. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get out of here. And I will tell you, it's just been an amazing day to get this opportunity to chat with Howard. And I can't uh, thank him enough. So for the Front Row Network, I am Craig, and we will see you real soon in the front row. 
hopefully in the front row of a future feature watching these amazing tactical monsters come to the screen. 